0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week I'm made 10% cooler just by proximity to our guest. Stephen Graham Jones. The man, the myth, the perfect mixture of good looks and super nerdy horror trivia. He was on the show a few years back to talk about his old to the slasher movie My Heart is a Chainsaw. Now he's back for the sequel Don't Fear the Reaper. So... Think of this as a continuation of what we began in 2021, but maybe set in a hospital. And if you get that reference, you're going to enjoy this episode. If you haven't listened to the first conversation between Stephen and I, then I'd recommend doing so first, as it sets a lot of the terms and groundwork for the following. It really is two halves of a whole. And that's episode 54, if you want it. If you can't be bothered, no worries. This will still be fun We're an open church here, and if anyone can give you an insight and a primer into the appeal of men in masks and triumphant final girls, well, it's Stephen. We talk about all of that and more, including favourite slasher sequels, minority monsters in horror, getting to know Jade better, and the importance of writing yourself into a corner. There is quite a bit of noise at Stephen's end, At times, it it sounds like he was recording in a school canteen. Apologies for that, but, you know, the conversation compensates. Quick reminder, if you want more Talking Scared, including bonus chat from authors as well as exclusive interviews just for subscribers, you can sign up to become a patron at patreon.com slash talking scared pod. Anyone who does is safe from Jason for a year. (laughs) But now... Come with me to a frozen Idaho town. Night has fallen and we're ready for another bloody showdown. Let's talk scared. Hi Stephen and welcome once again to Talking Scared. How the hell are you?
1: I'm doing great. I'm up here in Missoula, Montana in the big bad cold. What what you doing in Montana? I'm the James Welch Native American visiting writer for the spring semester here at the University of Montana.
0: Oh, very. I mean, very cool. I imagine it's quite a big deal in academic writerly circles. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of big deals, it's always a big deal having you on the show because, well, let's face it, your fans are rabid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, people got very excited when I mentioned you were coming on to talk to me. We last spoke about, I think, eighteen months ago now. Um, maybe even longer actually and if anyone hasn't yet listened to that conversation then I, i probably recommend everyone go away consume it and then come back because that time we spoke about my heart is a chainsaw and now you're here to talk about the sequel don't fear the reaper yep and in that first interview we set a lot of groundwork for your relationship with the slasher And I'm not going to bore you by asking you to repeat your own personal origin story in that regard. It's there if you want it, episode 54, if you want the background. But now, Stephen, let's turn to this new book, Don't Fear the Reaper, the second installment in the Indian Lake trilogy. What can you tell us to set the scene?
1: You know, it's four years after the Independence Day massacre, which was the, the big culmination, the big showdown, and my heart is a chainsaw. And... Jade has been dealing with legal difficulties, the fallout of that first cycle of violence. She was seventeen when that happened. It's four years later now. She's she's growing up and she's coming back home because number one, she doesn't really have anywhere else to go. And what she's finding is um what we all find when we go back to the place we grew up, I think. You're locked into people's old conception of you. It's hard to grow, it's hard to develop, it's hard to hard to be a new person and she feels like an. She feels like a new person. She still has her. She's still herself. She still knows about slashers, but she doesn't wear her slasher love on her sleeve and on her hair and on her eyes anymore. She goes by Jennifer, and her return to Proof Rock to Indian Lake coincides with the a serial killer in America, Dark Mel South, in a prison transport convoy going past during a hundred year blizzard there in Idaho, eight thousand feet up the mountain, and things go awry in that convoy, that that killer Darkmouth South slips away as his kind or of to do. And it's leading to uh intersection, a confrontation between Jade and Dark Mouth South. People are dying left and right in proofrock. Their bodies are hitting the floor, as Jonatko says, and Jade has to find a way to stop this cycle of violence. That's kind of what she's built for.
0: Yeah, and quite the cycle of violence, is it? It's quite a compact narrative. It's a lot of bloodshed in the very few hours, um, which I liked in all true slasher sequel style. Yeah. Before we get into the details, why and when did you decide to write a sequel to My Heart is a Chainsaw? Because I thought that was a standalone book with a perfect ending. Why are we back in Proofrock?
1: Man, I thought it was a standalone as well when I wrote it. And sold it to Joe Monty. I sold it as Lake Access only. And then we went through revising it. And he had me change, it to had me change a few of the things going on in it. And at the end of that, that revision, he, he said, you know, everybody in this novel is dead at the end. What if you let a few people live? And so, you know, being stubborn... Uh, dressed up my stubbornness as literary integrity and said, no, this is where it's all going. Can't you see? This This leads to that, to that, to that, and this person's dead. It was the end of My Hires of Chainsaw it used to be Hamlet with everybody dead on the floor, which I thought was great. But then he convinced me to give it a shot, to let some people live. And it completely changed the ending, of course. It made it more It It just made it all come together in a way I had never thought it could come together. And what it also did was it cued me into the fact that this could, this is opening up now this isn't closing it's opening up and so that's when I started thinking trilogy, which was funny because af- after we had finalized my hires a chainsaw that's when I told Joe and my agent this is a trilogy and I kind of pretended like that had been the case all along but it wasn't the <laughs> case and and um and what I you know what I love about a lot of slasher sequels like I think on Friday the 13th part two is probably the best example of it when the initial Install the initial installment, Friday the Thirteenth in 1980, is this surprise hit and just takes over the world. That makes the market in the studio, and the audience, demand that there be a sequel. But this was not built for a sequel. This was not built for franchising out, which is why you know Cunningham and Savini didn't play in the second installment, of Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. And but I love it when a different crew. Or the same crew, whoever, when they come into this this weird success, and they have to they have to sift through the ashes and find these little bitty burnt threads that have been accidentally left over, and pull them really really gently, so they can extract a franchise and hmm. somehow find another angle for this story. And I I love it when the sequel is not planned, and that's the feeling I hope I can get close to with this trilogy that. My heart is a chainsaw. Functions as a standalone, but then, surprise! Somebody found a little random thread and they pulled it, and it opened up into two more installments.
0: Well, I, I know I always kind of veer to or, towards obsequiousness when I talk to you, but um, I, I think you've surpassed Friday Thirteenth Part Two because in in Friday Two they do that awful thing where they just kill off Adrienne King's character <laughs> as if she's like you know just disposable. Yeah, yeah um and it does yeah. feel like a com- the closest thing to a retcon whereas yeah. this feels pretty seamless like it if you'd said to me it was always planned as a trilogy i would have completely believed you it does feel like a natural next step with what happens in this story
1: oh well thank you so much but yeah yeah, yeah. back in what 81 that's when the sequel came out right um yeah. we didn't we didn't really have final girls persisting so like we didn't have a um uh nancy thompson going from installment to installment we didn't have lori strode showing up yet in halloween Two quite and i don't think we did by the time friday the 13th part two came out but um that would become the norm eventually but yeah back in friday the 13th part two times you you didn't have the final girl pushed through but thank you i guess i should say thank you very much um i think friday the 13th Two is probably talking about like a pure slasher it may be the best slasher from the whole friday franchise but yes it is sad to see adrian king get dispatched so early in the story kind of meaninglessly too and yeah if i understand correctly she didn't know that she was going to get killed she showed up to act in another movie and suddenly her scene is like at a remote location and she's gone and that's a big it was a big surprise to her a big surprise to us
0: Yeah, I interviewed Adrienne a few years ago, and and she has very mixed feelings about that franchise. (laughs) Um, But you make a good point about the final girl not being a recurring character, and and now that has become more of a thing. To to go one further, has there ever been a franchise in any kind of slasher, whether it's books or films or whatever, like this, where not only does the final girl come back, but it's actually the killer is is the one who changes the killer who is a little bit more oh, disposable. Yeah. yeah that seems to be completely new to me
1: yeah thank you very much you know I, what I what I always kind of regret about the slasher is that during Halloween season we go to the store for masks and we find Jason Michael and Freddie masks and ghostface mask We don't find a Sydney Prescott mask a Lori Strode mask a Nancy Thompson mask you know we the final girls. Even though they are often stable throughout the franchise, they're not the ones that get valorized via merchandising. There's no action. There's usually not action figures of them. There's all. There's so many versions of Jason and all his different iterations. So yes, by by making the slasher be a revolving door kind of and keeping the final girl stable, I hope to center her more solidly in the center of this cycle of violence, which I think is where she belongs the final girl is the star um yes we might root for you know jason to do his stuff in a barn with an axe or whatever it is but um it's jenny that we that we believe in it's the final girl that Mm. we identify with i I hope it is anyways well
0: in a moral universe
1: it should be yeah yeah let's talk
0: about your final girl then It is a very different take on Jade, Jennifer. I'm going to call her Jade because it's easier because that's who she is in my mind, yeah? Um, Yeah. Because she's, as you say, she's a little bit, she's had some times in the four years in between stories. She's Uh been in the judicial system, you know, and she's a very different character. And you've explained where she kind of is psychologically. Was it different writing Jade now that she's no longer seeing the world through the lens of the slasher because I started wondering whether that whole thing had been a framework that made that was fun to play with or whether it was kind of a cage do do you miss it or are you glad to be free of it
1: you know um when Jade is wearing her slasher goggles in a sense she is like a like a funnel that I can that that slasher trivia knowledge tricks, trivia whatever that it funnels through and comes out of Jade, you know? So I kind of denied myself that this time because I mm-hmm. thought it might be too easy. And I think a writer should never do the easy thing. We should always do the scary thing, the challenging thing, the thing we want, the, we think won't work. And so in my hunters a chainsaw, one thing that the readers kind of told me worked was Jade's um monologuing about slashers. And so this time I thought I'm going to take that away from Jade. And because I don't know if she works without that, but it turns out she does. She's got it, she's enough of a character, enough of a person that she's got that kind of depth. She has other aspects than just uh, I know everything about slashers. So, tell you the truth, it was really kind of a way for me to get to know Jade even better to call her Jennifer and to have her not wear Raymond Pettibone shirts and not wear the, you know, raccoon eye makeup and everything.
0: Well, I'm glad you said that. That keys into what I think about this book, because you may remember me saying that in various reviews I've written of, of, of Chainsaw, I struggled with the first kind of third because I, uh-huh. I didn't uh-huh. yet. I, I, I said this to you before, but I didn't yet get that it, it meant anything because it just felt like, you know, you, as you yeah. say, funneling your information. And then yeah. obviously it expands into this whole like emotional scene. This time round, it's like it's straight in at that register where things matter right from the start. I mean, the first time we see Jade, she's come back to visit the sheriff who's now retired. And there's like an emotional bond from the get go. So it it did feel like not only a different character, but a different, I don't know, emotional aesthetic. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Jade has grown up some. She's four years older, you know, and. And that scene you mentioned about her return, that was actually the first scene I wrote of the book. Usually I write things linearly, but this time I knew I wanted to start with, start at least in my writing process with um, an emotional hook into Jade so I could understand the register the rest of the novel was going to kind of be in. And that was very helpful for me. And then Mm -hmm. I went back and wrote the Dark Mill South, you know, thing, talking about his history. And then, to say truth, I was almost all the way through the novel before I went back and wrote that prologue Where at the motel, at the Trails End motel. Because I, for some reason, I never think to do those until afterwards. I don't know why. <laughs> it was the same with as With Chainsaw, that prologue was initially, initially not in the same place. And that was also the case, I think, with the third one, if I remember correctly.
0: I wonder, though, if that helped. Because when we read these prologues, it always feels like you're already at full throttle. Do you know what I mean? So maybe if yeah. you maybe yeah. if you just yeah. out to write a prologue, it would feel more like you were kind of grinding your gears. Yeah. Whereas the way we read it, where it is, it's like oh, this was written in the full flourishing narrative that you were at at the time. You know,
1: that's a, that's a good point. I had not considered that. I bet I bet you're right. And but also the benefit of doing a sequel like Not for the Reaper* is that the world and the characters are the characters are already there and the world is already built, so the story can just hit the ground running. That's that's why don't fear the reaper is able to drop bodies every few pages whereas my heart is a chainsaw had to do more um let me introduce this world this lake this town all this stuff and let me introduce these characters um which maybe 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 if i was a better writer i would have found a different way to do it But i did it the only way i knew how to do it but don't fear the reaper did not have to do that kind of slowing down and it was really fun for that reason
0: Mm, so it's a condensed time period and it just revs all the way through um yeah and like, but it's funny that you say that by taking away the weight of that slasher law, that by taking it away, you made things hard for yourself. Because I, I listened back to our previous conversation uh, just this morning to prepare for this, and one of the things that I'd forgotten you said is that you emulate Philip K. Dick in this idea of, as you put it, writing to save your life. And as I understand it, by that you mean that you kind of you intentionally trap yourself in this kind of narrative. Mm-hmm cul-de-sac so that you have to find an an interesting way out yeah is that is that am i right in that's exactly right well that sounds exhilarating but now that you have now that you have firmly you know broken through in capital letters do you still feel able to take that risk when you've got the second part of a trilogy to deliver on a schedule and you know lead into the third yeah can you still take those risks
1: Definitely. I think if I ever stop taking those risks, then that means I'm stopping writing. Like the the one piece of hopefully decent advice that I give students and people is always write yourself into a corner because then to get out of that corner you have to become a better writer. And so every time you do that, you come out of that corner more and more capable. And I think writing yourself into a corner is the only worthwhile way of moving forward as far as I'm concerned. I love it when I'm reading a novel and I can tell with my right hand on the pages that there's a hundred pages left. Then something happens develop. There's a development in the novel and I'm like, well, this has got to be the end. What did they include a sample of the, the next novel at the end of this novel? Cause there can't possibly be a hundred pages left. So I love it when, when a story hits that wall and I feel exhilarated that there's something coming. I have no idea what it is, whether it's something I'm writing or something I'm reading. It's just so, so exhilarating, but, but yes, I'm, If I'm not pushing myself, then I'm not writing as far as I can. I mean, which isn't, I don't mean to like malign anyone else and say that they're not pushing themselves. Everyone has their own little tricks for getting across the page. And that just happens to be mine to always um, make myself be a better writer in order to move forward.
0: In many ways, this book, Don't Fear the Reaper, is a more complex beast than My Mm -hmm. Heart is a Chainsaw. And perhaps that's because you you don't have to spend time setting the scene and building the context. You can Mm -hmm. kind of give it everything. Um, But, for example, you know, the first book played a lot with the question of what makes for a good final girl. And and Jade projects that role onto her friend Letha because she doesn't see herself as worthy enough because she's poor, she's unbeautiful, and most of all, she's native. This time around, she seems to have zero desire to be the final girl. I mean, there's one brilliant bit where she actually says, this isn't exciting anymore. It's exactly as terrifying (laughs) as it should be. But um, this time around, it does seem even more complicated as to who the final girl should be and actually is.
1: (laughs) Oh, it definitely is. And I wonder if that's like a carryover from a 2012 novel, The Last Final Girl, where there's the whole homecoming court, each of them kind of vying for final girl status. You know, I wonder if I'm, if I am still doing, doing that little dance. I didn't even think about it until now, but, but yes, um, Jade used to think, I mean, she still believes in the kind of concept, the figure of the final girl, but you're right. She, she now knows from very visceral experience that these cycles of violence, these slasher instantiations are not remotely pleasant. She, she, She used to subscribe to them wholeheartedly because she wanted justice in her world but now she knows that justice comes at a very extreme price and she should i don't know if she should but she's asking herself whether there might be another way yeah there are this time
0: definite other contenders for who is that final girl you know we we still think of jade as the hero as the protagonist but we've got Ether. And I, I put on Twitter the other day that everyone loves Jade, but I, I really uh-huh. root for Letha, um, who, <laughs> yeah. who, for those who don't know, is, is Jade's best friend from Terra Nova, the very genteel new estate that was built on the other side of the lake, which has actually fallen into disrepair after the first book. Um, I love Letha. Um, and in this one, there are quite a few instances where she corrects Jade about details of slasher movies. Yeah, yeah, and they seem—I mean—that they seem to be written to sound like throwaway moments. But knowing what we know about these two women, they actually carry quite a lot of meaning, don't they?
1: Yeah, oh, they definitely do, and and I really like that that way you you, you phrase that—that it's kind of like Jade is handing off her slasher cue torch to Letha, or Letha is taking it—one one or the other. And there's also somebody else floating around who knows a heck of a lot about slashers in Pleasant Valley in this cycle of violence. Um, but it, it makes sense to me that there, that Jade would no longer be the only slasher expert because this town has been um, visited by, burdened with, you know, cursed with a slasher. So you want to, like if, if if giant bats are the thing plaguing your town, you learn a lot about bats. You know, and if slashers <laughs> are what's plaguing your town, then to survive, you learn a lot about the slasher. And Letha has a lot to protect now—not just her her fortune and her—but she has a lot lot, going, a lot she needs to, to, to protect. So the more she knows about the slasher, the better. It's almost like Letha watches them to armor herself up, in a sense. Jade subscribed to the slasher when she was in junior high, and then all through high school she subscribed to it as a means of life support almost. But for, for Letha, she is putting on plate armor with every single VHS tape. She queues up.
0: Yeah. I think that's why I root for her so much because she, she in this one, mm-hmm. she's not on the back foot. She's going into everything fully yeah. informed, fully geared up. You can yeah. almost see like the montage where she's getting dressed up. And, and <laughs> I, I, I like that because at the same time, she's a yeah. fairly kind of normal mum just going to war.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I, what I wanted for Letha is I think is this in Nightmare on Elm Street four where that final girl she gears up and she gears up with um like you get the eighties montage with the gloves mm. and the belt and all this strapping stuff on and I love that the little the little montage so I wanted Letha to um, be involved in that the whole way through sort of and
0: then there is Letha's husband Banner yeah. He's the ro- rookie cop left alone to deal with this kind of emerging shit show. Uh, is he your version of Dewey, David Arquette's ca- character from Scream?
1: Uh, he probably is. I would have to admit. I, I bet he is my version of Dewey. I think. Um, I think until Scream, we didn't understand that a Dewey was so productive for a slasher cycle. I mean, all the all the police officers we had seen previously, even in like not Elm Street, where they're a little bit integral to the to the story. Or I guess what's that other one? I'm not remembering now. The There's one where the oh, is it Prowler? Yeah, it's Prowler, where the sheriff ends up being the slasher, if I remember correctly. But um police have been important, but usually they're like they're like that cop who can't ride his motorcycle on the first Friday thirteenth. You know, they're just goofy and they're they, they don't matter at all. So Screen taught us that, you know, the law can actually be a, a vital like on the, the law can be on the deck crew of this slasher, basically. Mm-hmm. So so I do think that Banner kind of graduated there. But I think what I was trying to do with Banner is to show that people can change. Because in My Heart is a Chainsaw, Banner was not someone that we liked nor expected to make it through this story. But in the second one, I mean, just like Jade, he's four years older, and he's no longer the person he was in high school. He's, he's moved beyond that, and he's in a different role. And he doesn't always make the right decisions or think the right mm-hmm. thoughts, but who of us does, you know?
0: Because well, I I always think that, like, it's interesting reading this book where they are, they're no longer teenagers, they're young adults. And they're still kids, but mm-hmm. they are, you know, they, they've they got responsibilities. They, yeah. They're much more grown-up versions. And it got me thinking yeah. about the Slasher is a weird phenomenon because it's this really moral kind of fable in a way yeah. where if you ascribe to certain behavior, you will survive. And if you don't, you won't. And it seems a really Mm -hmm. weird time to impose that on characters who are at their worst, probably. You know, like as teenagers Mm -hmm. at 17, 18, we are not the most upstanding, morally consistent creatures on earth. And and that's when we choose to put these people into this grinding mill of kind of moral violence. Mm -hmm. It seems a really weird, like really kind of frighteningly conservative thing to do.
1: Yeah, no, the, there is a read of the flasher that it is kind of expressing, I don't know, Ronald Reagan values from the 80s or something. But, um, you know, I, I, I always, and I think one of the books might say this, I don't remember for sure, maybe I've said this in an essay, but, you know, John Carpenter, when people people tell him Halloween is a morality fable, he's like, you know, screw that, in, in typical John Carpenter fashion, you know? <laughs> he says, Michael when Michael kills these people who are having sex or doing drugs or whatever it is, or being drunk. He's not punishing them for that behavior. He's attacking them when they're at their most weakest such that he yeah. has the most chance of success. You know? And I'm and I always I always try to subscribe to that. Um, but I also have to acknowledge that there are probably gonna be people in this slasher who see um this Jason, this Freddy, whatever, as um a force of justice or morality and Mm. so i have to both i both have to identify that and then try to push it away or push it down or undercut it or something like that
0: it's weird right because they're probably the people who will be most incensed by these movies the kind of people who would say that Uh horror is wrong and that we are sick for liking it and all of that they're probably the people who would most ascribe to the morals at play in these films (laughs) yeah
1: i know that's so weird isn't it like like they're the ones who should be running these VHS tapes for us if they want to train us right by the yeah. by the way they understand the slasher yeah
0: well i mean speaking of that the whole like sin thing um i i am very prone to overreading things on this podcast but mm-hmm. a, a moment ago you mentioned there's another character floating around who knows quite a lot about the slasher and, and that character is cinnamon baker which is a great name for a character, and there's there's an element to which we're going through the same cycle where Jade thinks Cinnamon Baker is going to be the final girl, um, and and the, yeah. it's more complex to whether she is or whether she's not. Mm-hmm. Am I mistaken, or is there an intentional pun in giving your putative final girl a name that is abbreviated to the word sin?
1: <laughs> yeah, that was it. Was it was? I wish I could say it was intentional. I did. I stumbled into it. Um, like when I named Cinnamon and Ginger the twins, I was mostly doing that as a joke because I just thought it—I thought it was hilarious, you know. But um, but then when Cinnamon raises her head in this one, I realized that yeah, Sin is her her, her diminutive or whatever you call this fucking name. And but you know, actually, when I mentioned there's another character who knows the slasher really intimately, um, Armitage is who I was initially thinking of. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. He's like a fanboy who hmm. has showed up specifically because of the slasher terrain all around here.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? The, the whole the, There's so much gender theory at play in these films. I mean, it goes back, the entire thing with the final girl goes back to Carol Clover and gender theory. Yeah. But it, it's so interesting that even now, when we read Jade's fascination with the slasher, we think it might be a little bit disturbing maybe, but we don't see it as kind of creepy. Letha's, in this book, Letha's fascination isn't creepy. It's quite empowering. Yeah. Whereas Armitage, Armitage, whoever you say his name, because he's male, his interest in the slasher is immediately coded as kind of like this man bears watching. This is creepy.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the way he wants to cosplay his way through slashers, is kind of... Suspicious as well. Yeah, he—that is interesting, and I think you're totally right. I had not considered that every person who knows the Flasher very intimately and in don't fear the Reaper subscribes to it for a different reason or gets something different out of it. You know, yeah, I like that. Yeah, but cause, I
0: mean, I wonder how you felt about Armitage because there are things we won't reveal, um but because he is the only man who's really interested in this stuff, and he seems creepy, and we we code him as creepy as readers. I mean, you're a guy who's fascinated by the slasher. Is that you, kind of worrying at your own kind of psyche? Is that you thinking about? Is there something wrong with me? The fact that I, you you know what I mean? Is that you tussling with yourself in any way?
1: You know, I never realized it until you asked, but I think it probably is. Yeah, because when I back off and look at it, then I have to acknowledge that here I am watching high school senior girls get ripped apart, like, and I'm deriving some pleasure from that. I mean, I tell myself I like this this justice fantasy, but what if I just really like to see young people get killed or something? And and so I could, I could heighten that some and shine a light on it anyways via Armitage. That's a good segue
0: into a question prompted by an email from a listener. I think it's an interesting one because there's so much tied up in this slasher phenomenon. There's been a pushback in culture over the last few years about, you know, against plots that are primarily propelled by violence towards women, right? And by that, mm-hmm. I mean I mean plots where the catalyst is that some harm is done to a woman. Yeah. Um, or as the listener in question put it, sexual assault being treated as, treated as a thing that makes women interesting or complicated or badass. Yeah. The slasher, I think, is right in the middle of that. For, for good or bad, and, and I wonder, basically, you know, how do you feel about that? Because Jade's narrative is undeniably catalyzed by her father's sexual abuse. So, how how do you reconcile your story and the slasher in general with with that listener's point and the wider debate around it?
1: You know, I, yeah, no, you're totally right. That is a dynamic that we see happening over and over, and hopefully, it um, becomes less dominant, anyways. But in the first one. I think that's why I have Jade say, um, horror is not a symptom. It's a love affair. You know, I wanted her, I wanted her not to be defined by her trauma. I wanted her trauma not to be the, um, the little keyhole through which the whole plot has to squeeze. So that's probably why I delay, um, acknowledging it until very late, until everything had already reached a big high crescendo. Then I felt like I could, I could reveal it. But, um, but whoever that reader is asking that they could be right maybe i'm just perpetuating it i'm, I'm i can i'm not the one to say of course I, however i knew that i knew that i didn't want to sensationalize it i didn't want to sensationalize what happened to her her trauma i think her trauma is um i think me like kind of bringing her back through the paces of it would be just another more violence being Hurled against her. And I would, uh, I mean, I, I hurl all kinds of violence at Jade, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to make her um, relive that moment by moment again. And um, if there are any echoes of that type of trauma, and don't fear the Reaper, I'll also try to leave them off the page. And it's not that I'm flinching. I don't think it's that I'm flinching. It's that I don't want to sensationalize and I don't want to, um, I don't want to say that these women are only interesting due to the trauma that they've had you know I don't think that's a that's fair at all no and,
0: and but my weirdly <laughs> my my defense of your book not not that you need me to defend your book but if I was talking to somebody who had the reservations, I think I would yeah. defend your take on it in a way that you potentially therefore disagree with because my take on it was that these stories need to represent trauma because for me the misogyny of the slasher has been that we we chase women for 90 minutes and then the 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 credits roll and we don't care at all about what happens to that woman for the rest of her life when let's face it in reality she's never going to sleep again you know and i think yeah Grady Hendrix in Final Girl Support Group did a great job of like yeah. lo- looking at, you know, what happens after the fact. Yeah. And, you know, the the, yeah. the the David Gordon Green Halloween does the same thing. It looks at Laurie Strode as a uh-huh. as a as a uh-huh. carrier of trauma. Whereas Heart is a Chainsaw to me was slightly different. it, it seemed to uh-huh. me to say that Jade has already been through so much trauma that she is stronger uh-huh. than you can imagine. That she's already uh-huh you know, strong enough to take on the various threats at play. So, so for me, the trauma is indivisible from her character, but it's not in a way that is salacious or, or demeaning or making her just about, Do you get what I'm saying? So I think me and you potentially disagree, but, but (laughs) I'm disagreeing in a way that I'm, I'm defending your book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Thank you very much. Yeah. But Jade is not reduced to her trauma. Her trauma does, um, kind of define who she is a little bit, but she is not reduced to that. She is, she's, it's not that she's multifaceted. It's just, there's so much to more to her than her trauma. And you know, another, another thing that goes beyond the, the initial slasher is, um, what's it called? Last girl standing. I think it's from 2015. It's a final girl who made it through her, her, her cycle of violence, but now she has to deal with, um, having that behind her and how it transformed her and what it what it did to her and it's a really powerful story i think it's kind of like there's also a possession version of that ava's possessions it does the same thing like what do you do after you've been Mm -hmm. the person who was possessed and did all this stuff i I love those kind of stories like like grady's as well that push past and ask um they don't they don't subscribe to the fantasy that the world has been reset and everything is good now because all the like all this final girls family friends teachers pets they're all dead you know and Mm -hmm. and she had to cash in part of her identity probably to win this day to to live at all so i mean yeah the the violence doesn't stop when the slasher dies i guess that's what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. i always
0: think the most authentic end to a horror film although it's not a slasher is is texas Chainsaw when she's sitting in the back mm-hmm. of that truck and she's laughing yeah. and screaming and you know, she's never going to be all right again, you know? And I feel like yeah. that does enough in that one little few seconds of, of video, you know, Toby Hooper uh-huh. nailed it, you know, years before uh-huh. anyone else tried, he'd already nailed the fact that these, these wounds go far deeper than the skin.
1: Yeah, no, for for sure. And there's actually, um, well, I can't say it yet. Um, yeah, no, I agree with you that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not a slasher. It's, I don't know, it's a cannibal story or it's that old um country people country people versus city people story that we mm-hmm. see so many times in horror and, and elsewhere. But you're totally right that, that that vision of Sally Hardesty in the bed of that pickup truck kind of just um she's joyous, but you can tell that, that this is not gonna stop, that this this is this is in her head now and she's not gonna lose it is yeah. really, really strong. It reminds me it reminds me of from the Final Destination series, Clear she has encountered this like intangible death that comes for everybody in it's Ruben Goldberg ways. And so she ends up in a padded room because what else can, well, how else can you deal with this, with mm-hmm. this knowledge? It's almost, I mean, tell you the truth, Clear's response is kind of the response characters often give when they confront a cosmic horror that they, they realize their own insignificance and, and all they can do is retreat and, laugh in the corner you
0: know that is a great point because th- there are elements there aren't there you, you're f- i suppose obviously in cosmic horror you're finding something that is existentially much larger than yourself but in in a slasher you're kind of realizing that in any given moment all the social safety nets just fall away if it's just you and someone chasing you with a knife it doesn't matter how civilized the world you live in in that moment you are yeah. not safe and there is something similar in those two encounters <laughs>
1: There is. It's like, it's like Laurie Strode in Deep in Superbia running to house after house, knocking on the door, and society has collapsed for her. It's not. It's no longer protecting her. She has to do it herself, which I really think that that first um, cycle of the slasher, the golden age, from like, I don't know, 78 to the mid-80s anyways, I think it had a whole lot to do with a latchkey kid generation, kids who knew that when they came home – they were on their own until dinner. If they encountered bullies at the park, if they encountered if they got in a home alone situation, whatever it was, it was only them that they had to rely upon themselves. There wasn't a cell phone to call anybody. And I think so many slashers um, just dramatize that and heighten that. It's a kid alone running from terrible things. And I th- I have a I suspect that that's a big reason why the slasher caught on and metastasized so wonderfully in the eighties was that it answered an anxiety or it reflected an anxiety that lots of these latchkey kids were having.
0: And I wonder, actually, as well, if the reason the slasher is a kind of fundamentally American art form, I'm going to say it, art form, is because America's quite a unique place in which it has all the trappings of a highly civilized society, but there is very little social safety net. Whereas in, in the UK, yeah. we're so mesh, you know, we've got, there is so much social safety net in the UK, although our government's trying to strip it away, you know, not to get political. There is so <laughs> much social backup there that it probably wouldn't yeah. fly. Whereas in America, you that that individuality and the fact that you are always alone, economically alone, whatever, you know, the net can be pulled away yeah. at any moment. Yeah, I wonder if that's part of it.
1: I think you're totally right. I mean, America one of the like um core myths that Americans subscribe to in order, in order to get through the day is the the rugged individualism idea. You know, being able to go out in the woods and you know be a blacksmith, be a hunter, be a trapper, um, be a water purifier, like do everything. You know, it's like Hank Williams Junior.' song, "A Country Boy Can't Survive." That's that's the fantasy, the myth that propels America from day to day, week to week, year to year, and. But yeah, the flip side of that rugged individualism is if a bear steps up from behind a tree and wants you, it's only you. You can't call the bear patrol, you know?
0: Yeah, and that is that kind of cosmic terror. A bear may as well be Cthulhu in that moment. You know, you're on your own with it. <laughs> yeah. Another great segue you're giving me, Stephen, because, you know, rugged individuals, you myth mythologizing of certain things in America. You know, let's talk uh-huh. about Dart Mill South, this legendary killer of, many guises who roamed the highways and byways of the midwest um yeah. don't want to dwell too much on him because the kind of the point of your books is that he isn't as significant as jade and letha and the others but he does bear talking about you know yeah he isn't kind of folkloric figure he's like hook-handed he's scarred he's massively tall he feels like the distillation of you know the american menace where did you dredge him up from <laughs>
1: That's a really good point. Um, well, as I thank the acknowledgments, I get his name from a Jerry Reed song, Amos Moses. I persistently mishear Doc Millsap in that song as Dark Mill South until I looked it up. I didn't even know it was actually Doc Millsap, but that's just the name. You're right, though. Um, Dark Mill South. It's like a, a if you roll a snowball through all the um, name serial killers throughout the 20th century, they kind of all ball up into into Dark Mill South, and um. He kind of has a look of um, Rob Zombie's Michael Myers. You I know, mean, he's a big, big dude. He's very imposing. And the reason I wanted to make him kind of as bad as he is, like bad and like the good kind of bad. I mean, um, is big and capable. Is that in any story, it's it's always vital that the the antagonist be far more capable than the protagonist. That way, when and if the the protagonist um puts that that force down that antagonist down that it's an overcoming it's an underdog thing it's something that they weren't able to do with muscle they had to do with brains sort of and which is to say i'm kind of always reaching for the nancy thompson ending in Not Around elm street where she thinks her way out of it instead mm-hmm. of um grows muscles so she can chop freddie in half or anything like that now those are the final girls i respect the most who don't have to cash in who they are to win the day. And so I'm always looking for that. But in order to have that, you have to have a, a an opponent, an antagonist, a slasher, who is far more capable than them. And not just in the sense that um, it's not, he, it, he or she is not constrained by society's mores, anything like that. I mean, yes that, but also just physically and brutally. They're, they're, they're willingness to go into brutal spaces. you know?
0: Yeah. Again, like Jade, he's a Native American and Last time around, we talked about how it was important, you know, for you to create the first Native American final girl. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I'm not sure we've ever had a Native American slasher, like not counting Mohawk, because she's more of an avenging angel. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to to Mm -hmm. sort of to risk a patronizing question: Is it as important to have negative representation in horror as it is positive?
1: Totally is. If if you don't. Like I did a, a letter to a just starting out Indian writer and maybe to myself, people can probably search it up online. And which one of the, one of the things I'll plead for is that we have some um, Indian bad guys. Cause if we don't, that if the Indians are always the heroes or the victims or something, that's, that's just as much violence being done to us. That's a form of essentialism. It's, it's trying to recuperate the comic narrative, comic being like happy ending, is trying to recuperate that narrative by turning us into types and saying, um, we're, we're either victims or, or heroes, but for us to be a full, deep, real people or individual, we have to be able to be bad guys as well. And that's how I know that things are going, going good. When I start seeing, um, Indian bad guys. And Mm -hmm. I tried to do the first time I tried to do that was in a comic book. I did Memorial ride. I think that might be the first time I did it. Um, And it's very productive, I think. And it's, I wouldn't say liberating. That's the wrong way to say it, but it feels a lot more balanced, I guess. It it
0: reminds me of a conversation I had in the early days of this podcast with a a writer called Sam J. Miller. Um, He wrote a book called The Blade Between, in which he was saying to me that he was longing for more gay villains because too often Mm -hmm. they fall Mm -hmm. into every type except that, you know, it's exactly the same point you're making. But I suppose a slightly deeper question is how do you thread that needle when, when so much horror has already turned, well, every minority you can think of, you know, you know, but particularly non-white characters, horror has historically yeah. already monstered those people so much. Yeah. What's the yeah. secrets doing it the right way? Is it just about doing it, the, the fact that you're doing it, or would you, would you generally want to see, you know, a, a, a white author? right an, an indian villain you know as long as it was done right how uh, how, yeah. how do you thread that needle
1: that's a really good question it's one i had not considered um the way i thread the needle is by not not expressing the same stereotypes onto these indian bad guys and to making them unique and individual like if dark male south um Wore a Geronimo headband and swung a tomahawk and gave a big Indian speech with each murder. That would be making him into a caricature, and that would be doing a separate type of violence to to everyone. I feel like. So, I wanted to make him. I mean, I wanted to resist all that. So, mm-hmm. as is, he's he's not like saying I gotta run to the I gotta run to the woods and build a lodge and. And to make it through the winter and I uh, you know, I got to dry meat the old way and all that all that stuff. Um I'm not saying that stuff is bad at all. It's great. You can actually find a lot of that in Wabashog Rice's um Moon of the Crested Snow and it works wonderfully in his post apocalyptic story, his post apocalyptic novel, which has a sequel coming out this year as well. But um but yeah, that, that I don't know how to answer that. Like, do I want white people to do bad guy Indians? Because I do suspect that when and if they do it'll even if they do it like exactly by some set of precepts that maybe i would subscribe to it feels like some nuance might be missed and it Mm. would be so easy for it to shade into shade into caricature you know like um i always i somehow for some reason um a lot of screenwriters write me and ask me um they'll say i have a native american component in my screenplay and how do I do that respectfully? Which is wonderful. I'm glad that they're looking for help and they're acknowledging the fact that it, there's a lot of wrong ways to go there. But um, I guess the slowdown for me is I often ask, I've got some Native American myths here that I need to um, couch in a way that's not disrespectful. And my first reply is that you're using the word myth. You know, if you're using the word myth, then I think you're already in bad territory. Um I mean unless you're gonna also call Christianity a myth and all the other religion all the other major religions a myth, you know. It's it's I think it's a weird insult to say of a, a culture's belief. Um look at that cute little story you believe in, you know? Yeah. Um, but um so so yeah, I don't know. It's I'm I've gotta think that it's possible to for a white person to do a Indian bad guy in a good way. I I'm right now I'm failing to um come up with a good example
0: of that though oh yeah and, and this is far from me advocating for it you know i'm just i'm just interested because i can totally see how everyone would get really sick of seeing themselves only as these dull two-dimensional good yeah. guys i could totally get that because you know I, i'm i'm a white british guy trust me there is a multiplicity of characters uh-huh. i've seen that i can <laughs> you know can, can see myself in you know um I, it's just it, it's that it's that unbridgeable thing isn't it at the minute where like in order to get to the place where everyone can do that, there's going to be so much yeah. hurt and so much insult and so much fucking just stuff done wrong. It's almost like, Christ, how do we, how do we get to the future when we can, this is done respectfully across the board. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. Like you don't want to take this. Do you know what I mean? I just, it's an unsolvable. Yeah, knot. I don't yeah. quite know how to, how to pick apart that, that guardian. knot, really.
1: Yeah. We we need some like um Alexander the Great like in the Watchmen cutting through the Gordian nut, yeah. you know yeah <laughs> and fast fast we need we need we need Osterman to come is that his name John John is Dr Manhattan we need him to push the fast forward but <laughs> yeah. you're right and right get get us thirty years in the future and that would help immensely but but you know I'm teaching a class right now um as part of this visiting professorship I'm doing they wanted me to teach a Native American lit course and. I don't really teach lit. I only, I only ask questions in class that I think help me become a better writer. I'm, I mean, literature teachers are great. I'm not a literature teacher. That's the trick. I don't like the, the type of analysis and um, all that that goes on in the literature classroom. I love it. It's not something I can do very well. Mm-hmm. But what I can do is ask craft questions and genre questions that, if answered or at least engaged, help me understand things better and you know help me be a better writer. So the Native American Lit course I'm teaching right now, I'm teaching as a genre course. I want to identify the conventions and tropes that um, possibly characterize this set of books we're reading and distill them out and see if they can be arranged into a formula that anyone can replicate or if it's only um, American Indians that can do it. And But the immediate problem you face with that is if you say only Indians can write Indian Lit, then the next step you have to take is who is an Indian, and that is something that um, is very, very. Um, to, it's very dangerous when you have a gatekeeper saying you're Indian, you're not Indian. Then mm-hmm. you're already in trouble. You know. So how do you define who an Indian is? And um, like Drill Bissner said, it's, it's an act of the imagination. And I might just that might be the best definition I've heard because you can't go by blood quantum, you can't go by enculturation. Like with Jade, that was that's that's a that was probably my. The main reason I set Jade in Idaho is instead of Montana or Colorado, I know Colorado better and I know Montana better. And Montana is Blackfeet country and Jade is Blackfeet. But I was coming out of the only good Indians. The only good Indians is set on the reservation. There's, um, you know, a smattering of um, Blackfoot language in there. And I didn't want to allow anyone to believe that that to be Indian, you have to be on the reservation. You have to know the the word for elk all that stuff mm-hmm. so jade is very remote from anything that would be ancestral homeland i'm not saying we didn't travel down to idaho back when we did but it wasn't wasn't our place necessarily and i wanted to to show that you can be native with out that like if, if you're like jade and you happen to be born far away and your only contact to the the tribe the nation is your father but that's an malignant presence so you don't want to use him for that or mm-hmm. you don't want him to be the the person who introduces you to all that then are you still indian and i think most definitely you are because to say you aren't is to deny a whole generation who was kidnapped and uh, adopted out and it's saying that because y'all didn't grow up on the reservation with the language and the beliefs and the customs and the community you're not you're no longer indian i think that's a terrible violence to do to people and so i wanted to show that look jade she she can be just as indian out here in idaho as she could in browning montana on a reservation
0: i had a great conversation with erica t worth who i know you, you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. about her mm-hmm. book white horse which does something similar t- you know it take i'm sure you've read it but it takes apart the idea of you know what constitutes being indian enough you know it tries to dispel this idea of like you've got to be deep into the spiritual side of things or you know mm-hmm. as like, all that all that kind of apparatus um, and that got me thinking on exactly those lines because I have no insight in, into your culture Stephen it, it's not because it should because of geography you know like it's
1: yeah, I don't
0: yeah. in England meet many people who are Native American so it, the only access I have is through media and now thankfully through speaking to people like yourself you know but there is this really codified idea in culture of, of what it means to be indian you know and i think the more books we can get that yeah. that perhaps pull apart
1: that a little bit the better yeah yeah and it's really fun for for the the native characters and whatever the, the piece of fiction is to be 100 percent aware of the like stereotypical expectations that the world has for them yeah. and then push back against push back against them or undercut them or mm-hmm. or subscribe to them too which is also a balance we do to ourselves we we say that we should all that that traditionally we're hunters, most of us are hunters, a lot of us are farmers too, but, or fish, fishers, but um, that if we can do violence to ourselves by saying, well, I don't know how to shoot a deer or dress a deer, therefore I must not be Indian, and that's not the case at all.
0: Yeah, and, and speaking of Dark Mill South, he's mm-hmm. a character who finds or suggests motivation for his crimes in real historical atrocity there's there's a, 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 a this historical event, the 1862 mass hangings. Am I right? It's Mankato, Minnesota. Yeah. Am I right about that? Yeah. And and yeah. early yeah. on, it's kind of posited that that atrocity has in some way spawned Dartmill South's behaviour. Um, I, I did note that it's actually never really backed up by anything he does. So there is, there's always a sentiment that it's a bit of a pose he's adopting maybe. Yeah. But I mean, I, I know very little about you know that event. Can you can you talk a little bit about why you incorporate that into the story and why it birthed your killer?
1: Yeah, because I think America really wants to um, subscribe to this idea that a killer has an understandable motivation, mm-hmm. and so the media glommed on to this 1862 mass hanging and puts that behind Dark Mill South as his motivation, and yeah, what you're right, whether it is or not um, is it doesn't isn't really confirmed or denied in the in the story, but um also whether it is or not doesn't matter to America America believes whatever it, the media tells it to believe you know, and so as far as the world is concerned, that is the reason people. People love explanations, and I mm-hmm. think in these kind of um, violent instances, explanations are, you know, always going to be tenuous and always going to be a little bit, a little bit iffy. Which I hope is the case here. But what I, I that story about the thirty-eight men hanged, um, it, it came from, as I say in the acknowledgments, I guess Long Soldier's poem 38. I mean, I had known about the hanging for a while, but until I read her poem. Uh, I don't think I had quite cued into the, um, I don't know, just the way it sits in the world, I guess. But I've read that poem a lot of times. I used to keep it open in a tab and make myself read it every day. It's, it's a long poem, too. And I recommend everyone read it. layla is an amazing poet. And she really gets across the, I don't know, the anger, maybe that's the word, of, of the whole thing. Yeah, no,
0: it it did strike me as interesting that it's all narrative that's imposed on Dartmoor South. He never espouses any of it himself at all. And that thing you said about how yep. like America wants to find reasons for crimes. I mean, I think that's a fairly universal thing. But you do you do directly address in one point this 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 phenomenon that of of kind of mythologizing serial killers specifically as kind of folk characters that, you know, they become folkloric almost immediately in a way that, you know, school shooters don't, um, you know, Timothy yeah. McVeigh, the, the Oklahoma bomber hasn't entered mythology in that way. You know, uh-huh. there's something about uh-huh. serial killers that enters that, that part of the like collective consciousness. But you seem to be interested in taking that apart. You seem to be not necessarily wanting to perpetuate that.
1: No, I'm not. I think that, and the reason we suck our serial killers into those folkloric dynamics is that that makes them like the Big Bad Wolf in a Red Riding Hood story, which is to say they become something that has use, but we don't have to acknowledge it's real. You know, something to keep us on the path, but we don't have to be afraid of of it day to day. Like, Mm -hmm. we're not actually scared of the Big Bad Wolf in Little Red Riding Hood. We understand what its story purpose is. And so I think mythologizing these serial killers is both a way of making them larger larger than life, but making them so diffuse that it takes their scare away, basically.
0: Oh, that's interesting. You, you make them characters that aren't they don't be yeah. the a real threat. Yeah, I never thought they were like that. That is that is interesting. Yeah. But again, that the, the, your book is definitely both books, actually, but this one in particular, this one has got kind of like the, the, the mythical serial killer in the heart of it. Yeah, they are pulling attention away from him because he's yeah, he has a kind of cool, kind of enigmatic backstory, but you're never that interested in what he's doing or why he's doing it. You just want to see him get taken down.
1: Yeah, or you want to... you, you I mean, you want to see him taken down, but also, it's like... Do um, you remember that old comic book cover of Thor and Silver Surfer about to hit, about to attack? Like, Thor is coming down from the sky with a hammer and Silver Surfer, Surfer's got his arms up, I think. And we love those kind of... Um, like rumble in the jungle type Mm -hmm. um the two the two biggest people are going against each other you know and i think we want the showdown when we know how how capable and brutal dark mill south is we want to see the the lid peeled off of that for a moment you
0: know yeah and all i'll say is without any spoilers is that the the very final confrontation is an absolute fist pumper (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you. That's, that's what I wanted. Thank you
0: very much. Yeah, I was I was delighted. Um, but uh, enough about men, because I, I don't want to turn your book into yeah. a treatise on serial killers, because you know, on yeah. for a whole kind of meta reasons, so that's not the point. Um, something when we talked about trauma about half an hour ago, one of the things that really struck me from like the absolute core of this book is that mm-hmm. my heart is a chainsaw was a book primarily about young women and their fathers so jay's father's influence on her is awful Letha's dad turns out to be a murderer which is you know arguably worse but who knows and it's yeah it's about the influence of bad fathers this book seems to be wholly about mothers as much more nurturing figures because you know you've got like Letha has become a mother, we spend a lot more time with Jade's mum in some pretty touching scenes. Mm-hmm. Um, is mm-hmm. that a fair comment? Is that something you did on purpose? Or is that just being yeah. kind of giving you a narrative? Yeah.
1: No, I mean, no, it's it's definitely accurate. And um, I did definitely realise that Chainsaw is very much about malignant fathers. And and I thought it, it's going to be too heavy if I do don't Fear the Reaper, the second book in the Chainsaw stuff. If I do it, I'll about fathers as well. So I did shift over to mothers. I mean, partially to be even-handed, you know, mm-hmm. but partially just to avoid repetition too.
0: Changing tack before we finish, um, I always want to take the opportunity to just to talk slashes a little bit more with you because you're a kind of yeah. just hive of information. Um, and and mm-hmm. this book is almost as chock full of references as the first. And mm-hmm. I, I, did, mm-hmm. I did wonder as I was reading it, is there a pressure to always dive deeper or to keep up with the newer entries? I mean, you make quite a lot of jokes about Jade having been in prison and not being fully in the loop. Is that just your way of getting out of stuff? Because I imagine there's a lot of pressure there.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to. The, the there, there is a lot of pressure, and but I, at the same time, with Chainsaw, the first the first novel, I didn't want to hold back at any point. I didn't want to feel like I was saving it for the next one. So I just mm-hmm. tried to let Jade and Jade and the narrative express everything about slashers. They could such that my tank was on empty. Therefore in the second book, I'd have to go to a reserve tank or something. Mm-hmm. But with this one, yeah, the, the kind of the running joke is Jade has missed the last four or five years of horror films and of slashers in particular. And that kind of leaves her at a disadvantage because there's things going on. There's um, signals being given that he's not quite picking up on because she's no longer in the loop. And, Yes, um I like uh, I remember with the first one there was a lot of people making letterbox lists of all the films that are <laughs> mentioned in passing and in my heart of the chainsaw. And a lot of those are probably the same ones this this round. And but I knew I couldn't write for those lists, if that makes sense. I don't wanna like be playing a trivia game. I only yeah. wanna include um slasher slasher trivia when it's coming from a character. I don't want it to ever like I was talking about Jade being a funnel and I imagine like the clouds condensing into droplets that go into that funnel. I don't see me as um, sneaking out my little trove of slasher trivia and pouring it into that funnel because that's not, that's not how it should work. And it's too easy to make it work like that. So I had to always be on guard.
0: Well, I'm going to show you one film because you, you reference it in a, in a quite creepy scene, actually. There's an extended reference to a film called Curtains, right? Now, I've yeah. never even heard of this movie but you mentioned this uh, iconic ice skating scene and a hag mask. What have yeah. I missed? Is this, is this a, a thing I should know about or is it really a deep dive?
1: It's, it's not, it's a little bit of a deep dive, but um, that ice, there's a scene in curtains where the killer and a hag mask is ice skating. And I believe has a little sickle, much like the character does and don't for the reaper because that person is cosplaying this moment. And It's really pretty haunting. I think they, the film has slowed down a touch there. Not, not quite super slow motion, but it slowed down a little just to like make it more impactful. Really, really, really effective. And, um, Curtains is wonderful as it is. I would love to, I would love it if more people knew Curtains. And, um, I don't know if that means a remake or a new release or or what, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I believe in Curtains. Curtains was one of the really good ones.
0: Okay, I'll I'll check it out, because I, I like I say, it's completely new to me. And um, I also, I've got to ask you, last time I asked you what your favourite slasher is, right, and you said Scream, without even pausing, yeah. you were yeah. like, Scream. Yeah. What's your yeah. favourite slasher sequel? Because it can't be Scream too.
1: <laughs> no, no, it's not. Um, that's a good question, I haven't thought about that. I think, I think my favourite sequel to a slasher is probably Prom Night 2, but... The funny thing about Prom Night 2, if you've seen it, is that it was actually not a Prom Night um, screenplay until somebody decided to put that name on it. So it's really just a different story set at a a high school. (laughs) It's a really fun, wonderful story, and it's hard to call it a slasher. It's it's supernatural in a different way than slashers tend to be. But if I'm sticking to a a sequel that is a slasher, then let me think right quick. Not really. Elm Street Two is fun with Jesse. Um, I like Halloween too. I like how Halloween Two picks up right where the first leagues mm-hmm. off, even though Jamie Lee Curtis is wearing that funky wig. Um, you know, it might be. I mean, this is not at all to say anything bad about um, the second Friday the Thirteenth, which I think is really, really strong. But I think it might be Final Destination Two. I like Final Destination Two a lot, man. It's got that that log um, that log truck on the interstate. Yeah. is that's what it opens with. Yeah. and that is so iconic and so terrifying and i think it really lodged itself in all of us such that anytime we're on the interstate we are a little <laughs> bit nervous about that and um and i love how the second final destination it ups the stakes and it has to go back to talk to clear and yeah it's just there's nothing i don't think there's anything at all wrong with the second um final destination or the third i love the third one as well
0: that's a good shout can i tell you what, I'm, what my favorite is because you may not even agree it's mm-hmm. a slasher right because i don't know this yeah. is Right, Psycho Two. I absolutely love Psycho Two. Is do you think Psycho is a slasher?
1: I think it's a proto slasher. I think you've got the signature weapon, you've got the mask. Um, I do think that Norman Bates is a serial killer, not a slasher. But okay. um, it's got so many. It's got so many of the characteristics of a slasher. Mm-hmm. I think it. It was very formative. Like you add Psycho to the giallo and you get black Christmas basically. Mm-hmm. And then from black Christmas, the only way black Christmas misses being a slasher, I think is that there's actually no confrontation between, um, Jess, the final girl who's a wonderful final girl and, um, the slasher at the end, it's kind of like a slasher, not a puppet, but it's a, a someone being pushed out by the slasher as right. the slasher. So she puts that person down, but it's not, it's not Billy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. but then we see, but then, um, black Christmas, is kind of answered or not one up. it's followed up by Halloween, what four years later or five, mm-hmm. whatever three years later? And, um, and then the slasher gets codified. So I'm, um, I think we got so much that we need from, well, both peeping time and psycho, yeah. but then it gets funneled through, through the giallo. And then we have to, and then I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though it's not a slasher, did a lot to, to kind of carve out what a final girl is and can be. And, it all washes up on the shore of Halloween, and we're off to the races, man.
0: Well, I, I love Halloween too, but yeah, Psycho 2, because I just think it's a really quite... I remember one of the yeah, films that I saw it on my tiny little grainy TV when I was watching it in my room, and I shouldn't have been. I was supposed to be asleep, and I saw all the best horror yeah, films that yeah. way, and I remember watching Misery that way and screaming when she broke his leg. And But yeah, Psycho 2, there's a scene where like the girl he's dating goes down in the cellar, and we all know what's happening in the past and it's so creepy. Oh it is. And then of course at the end, shovel to the head, my favorite <laughs> ending to any yeah. horror film ever. So yeah. So that Yeah, yeah. Well you know, yeah.
1: in that in that second psycho, if I remember correctly, um Norman is having to deal with everyone's expectations of him. Yeah. And he's come home. He's 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 much like Jade, he's coming back to his community. And trying to say I'm a different person, I'm a different person, just mm-hmm. like Jade is. But everybody's like, you're still the same person. You're, you're still, or you are now, who you've always been. And that's a that, that's a, that's a type of violence that small towns and communities tend to do to us. In a big city, you can be anonymous. You can change your identity every day. But in the town of two thousand people, where people have known you since you're in diapers, they they have a hard, a much harder time letting go of who you used to be.
0: Yeah, well, it, I mean, it inspired the book I'm trying to write because a big part of it is a man coming back to this town after being in prison for fifty years for a truly abhorrent crime that he may or may not have committed. And every time I think about oh. it, I realize it was inspired by Psycho too. So clearly, yeah, it, it yeah. had some indelible yeah. influence on me. Yeah, that's I, I love that movie. Um, oh, definitely. No, I, like, spe- I like it a lot too. To, to finish, um, speaking of towns that you know, where you? It's quite hard to shuck off your history. When are we going to get the third instalment in Jade's story and, and Proof Rock and all of that? I mean, what what's the crack with with the the end of this trilogy? Are you working on it now? Is what, what's the deal?
1: I finished. I turned it in on August fifteenth of twenty twenty two, and I'm currently in revisions for it. But the revisions are not. Um that exhaustive um i kind of looked into getting it down in a good way the first time through i think anyways we'll, we'll wait until people read it to see but that, that, you never know until the reader activates it but i imagine it comes at us in 2024
0: amazing i mean i won't ask you to tell us anything about it because i know you're not going to um but yeah. do you do, have you finished it in the way that you think is you know satisfying to to you and to readers i mean do you have High hopes for how you I do this I, narrative.
1: I, I, I do have really high hopes for it. Um, like at the end of any story, in which a trilogy is just a long story, you want that sense of inevitable, inevitable surprise. You want you want to feel like I didn't guess that, but looking back, I can see that this is the only way it could have gone. And I do think that at the end of um, this third novel, I almost said the title of it. I'm not supposed to say it yet. <laughs> at the end uh, at the end of this third this third um, Indian Lake novel that there is a little bit of that inevitable surprise. You can see that it's been going this way the whole, it's been going this direction the whole time, but also it's really difficult to guess that that's where it's going to land.
0: Oh, very cool. I hope it has something to do with a certain fleshy lump that was found under the, the... Boardwalk on Indian uh, Lake, but uh, I will I will leave that <laughs> for people who haven't read the second book yet to uh, to plumb. <laughs> right, yeah. well, yeah. before we before you leave us, Stephen, and I do hope you'll come back in twenty twenty four because this has become a trilogy for yeah. myself that I need to complete by having you back to talk about the final book. But before you leave us, can you recommend a book that you think my listeners should read and tell us why?
1: Yeah, it's coming out this year, I believe. I was lucky enough to read it early. CJ Leeds. Maeve Fly, M-A-E-V-E Fly. It's a horror novel, and it's really icky and uncomfortable, and it completely worked for me. Every once in a while, a novel just absolutely sings for me. And the last time that happened, maybe, was Mike Bacobin's Fantastic Land. Before that, it probably would have been Gemma File's Experimental Film. Mm -hmm. And now it's Maeve Fly by C.J. Lee. I've completely... Completely lost myself in that novel. and was 100 jealous that I had not written written it myself, and I hope the book does great.
0: It's got a lot of lot of comparisons to American Psycho, which intrigues me. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I love American Psycho too.
0: We, we can all do with a bit more ick in our lives. Yeah. Okay. Well, I will <laughs> check. Definitely, I'll try and get the author on the show, maybe. um Last question, Stephen. Normally, cause I'm asking this for the second time because I asked you last time, and normally I go back and check what you said last time, but I didn't. So who knows? What truly scares you?
1: I think other people, you know? I mean, I guess what's, what the thing that scares me the most is that um, it's childhood hunger, I think, childhood starvation. And that terrifies me that we live in a, a world or reality where we can let kids go hungry. That just hurts my soul, I guess. And, and it's not like people are stealing that food away from kids, but there mm-hmm. are so many people who could be feeding those kids who are not feeding those kids. And and those are the people I'm scared of, you know, the people mm-hmm. who can rationalize to themselves that um, some people have to starve for other people to, to be okay. You know, and I don't, I don't think that's gonna really get us into the future very well. I think we need to be better somehow.
0: Fingers crossed, man. Fingers crossed. We all get a little bit better.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, tell you the truth, I think the I think I think the slasher helps us get better. If if we can read and engage enough slasher stories, then we can um, suspect that there is a slasher on each of our back trails. And those slashers, man, they keep us honest. They make us make better decisions. I think they make us be more compassionate.
0: I'll take that. What a, what a. I never thought we'd find a way to think that, you know, slashes could potentially solve the many problems of the world, but I'll take it, Stephen. I'll take it. It's, <laughs> the, it's yeah. the best we can perhaps hope for. <laughs> um, listen, man, I always appreciate your time. Cause I know you're always highly in demand. Um, thanks for talking to me again. Thanks for coming back and letting me quiz you about slashes again. I don't need to push this. People know what they're getting with your stuff, particularly the proof rock novels and and this is a more than worthy successor to my heart is a chainsaw and it's going to do great in it let's face it but yeah steven thank you very very much for talking scared
1: man it's always great being on this it's always great talking to you thank you very much do
0: you want to hear an embarrassing story okay that was quite a long conversation, and I actually edited it down. I cut out some of the stuff we covered first time around, plus the more self-indulgent chat about obscure slashes, because that would be interesting to like me, Stephen, and about 3% of you guys. I also cut out the part where I went on a lengthy, heartfelt commiseration about the recent loss of Stephen's mother. I witted on for about 30 seconds longer than I should have, only for Stephen to respond with, Mmm, thanks, but my mum's not dead. (laughs) Cue a good few minutes of back and forth, in which I kept telling him I'd read a tweet about it, as if he was going to say, Oh, you know what, you're right, yeah, she is dead, I forgot. I was even scrolling down his Twitter feed, trying to find this tweet about his mother, having passed on, as if it was going to be there when she's not dead, and we we sort of left it in a bit of confusion and moved on. The day after, what pops up on my feed? The post about his mother passing away. Upon closer inspection, it turns out it was Stephen Graham, the British actor, who actually needed my condolences. (laughs) Yeah, I messaged, SGJ, and he was typically nice about it, but it was more than a little embarrassing. Hmm. Anyhow, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Steven really is a delight to speak to. I I don't know how he summons these uber-niche references so readily. You read the books and you imagine him trawling IMDB for info, but no, it's all just there in his brain. Like My Heart is a Chainsaw, Don't Fear the Reaper is a bonanza for horror nerds. It's less overt than Chainsaw. The references are not quite so thick and frequent because, as he said, these characters have moved on. And that does make it an easier book to get into because, like I said, the emotion is there right from the start this time. If I'm honest, there is something about Stephen's fiction that I always appreciate way more in hindsight than in the act of actual reading. I find his prose style, and in particular his dialogue, to be so like, naturalistically fragmented and non-linear that sometimes I struggle to keep up. It, it can make for a pretty frustrating read when I'm trying to read at pace, as, as I always am for this show. But afterwards, it, it's like looking at a complete jigsaw puzzle, or... An optical illusion that suddenly makes sense. Oh, it's not a jar, you realise. It It was two people kissing all along. So in the end, I really enjoyed Don't Fear the Reaper. Especially the literally fist-pumping ending. But yeah, I have to work for it. I had to slow down and commit to some proper, close reading. Does anyone else feel that way? Or, or is it just me? Are you all whizzing through this stuff at pace? Let me know. You can get in touch, you can give me your thoughts on the book. Are you Team Jade or Team Letha? What do you think about the thorny issue of negative representation? Or what do you think will happen in the final instalment of this trilogy? Whatever you want to talk about, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me your thoughts in full at talkingscaredpod@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please, if you're new, subscribe to the podcast if you like it Leave a review if you can. I'm going on the hunt for a sponsor in earnest and this stuff really matters. Also, as mentioned ad nauseum, if you want to kind of give hands-on support to the show and get loads of bonus content, you can sign up at patreon.com slash talking scared pod for a few dollars a month. The next thing to be uploaded is a true exclusive interview with the authors of the new book The Black Guy Dies First, Black Horror Cinema from Fodder to Oscar. It's a great eye-opening conversation with one of the writers responsible for horror noir. And back next week with another landmark episode. Mariana Enrique joins me to talk black magic, political horror and the most hideous lore from Patagonia. That's all there in her epic, Our Share of Night. Do not miss that one. Until then, though, have as much sex as you want. Drink all the beer. Take your drugs, sensibly. The slasher rules just don't matter anymore. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.